Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Rob Hunt out in California and Jim Marty in Longmont. Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Larry. Nice to hear your voice. Thank you. You too. Uh, anything fun and exciting going on for you music-wise the last week? Oh, I did do a little bit of couch tour for uh, for Fish in Vegas, which was a lot of fun. Uh, other than that, did not get to see any of the uh, the Hollywood Bowl shows or Santa Barbara or any of the other fun stuff, but um, certainly have been tuned into what's been going on. Wonderful. Uh, and out in Longmont, we have our co-host, Jim Marty. Jim, how's everything going with you? Very good. That's uh, post-election time here, so we have a little political news to talk about and some uh, great clips, and we'll talk about uh, Dead & Co. uh, hitting Red Rocks uh, this past uh, October 20th, so we got some good clips on that, and uh, I'll be able to do some reviews of the the four shows that we had here in Colorado with Dead & Company, and uh, a little update, maybe along with Rob, of the uh, Vegas Fish shows. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, why don't you uh, lead us off with uh, what's going on out in Colorado right now? Well, we had uh, Proposition 119 failed uh, mightily, a big victory for the cannabis industry. I think the uh, margin of victory was about 8 points, 46 to 64, and a lot of heavy advertising leading up to the election uh, day, uh, November 2nd, at um, as we like to say, politics makes strange bedfellows and heavy advertising by conservative groups, uh, past Republican uh, governors uh, doing airtime, uh, promoting uh, this. But uh, I guess our the voting public in Colorado was not in a taxing mood. Uh, all three statewide um, tax initiatives failed uh, mightily here in Colorado. So big victory for the industry. Uh, there's been a lot of news here in Colorado uh, in the papers and all, but uh, I guess the uh, public has decided that marijuana is just not the golden goose that they can keep taking the golden eggs from. So good news there. Okay, well, it's nice to spread the pain around a little bit, right? You don't have to put everything on marijuana's uh, shoulders. Yes, we're already paying uh, about 21% at the cash register for sales tax. Uh, this would have boosted it up above 25%. So definitely uh, would have made people think it would have promoted the illicit market. Well, we have 25% here in Illinois right now, so, you know, the prices are very expensive. I think we're still kind of, if you can be, a year and a half or almost two years in, in a honeymoon stage where people are still just so excited about the ability to walk into a dispensary that they continue to, to, to really bustle right along. And I think that's a good segue into the other marijuana issue I know we wanted to talk about today. There was an article uh, in MJ Biz, uh, one of our constant sources for news in the marijuana industry, pointing out that adult adult use sales have slipped around the country uh, from where the numbers were in 2020 after what they're calling a lackluster summer. And I was a little surprised to see that because in Illinois, we're, we're, we're chugging right along. Last year, the industry did $1.2 billion. This year, they're on pace for $1.4 billion, uh, which we're very excited about. Um, but I was wondering if, uh, what about you, Rob? What are you seeing out on the West Coast in terms of uh, the market? What are you hearing from the people you're working with? Hey, what I'm seeing is that uh, the, the public is still using as much cannabis as they ever have. Now, the question goes back to 25% sales tax rates. Where are they accessing that cannabis? I, mean, I don't think there's any, any uh, question that um, you know, the consumption rates across the country remain very, very steady. It's just a question of whether or not you buy an eighth for sixty bucks across the counter of your local store. You buy that same eighth for thirty-five bucks from you know someone else that's able to supply it to you. 
uh, just as conveniently. And if those are the two questions, then you know, very likely we're seeing a lot of people return to the illicit market, as Jim already suggested, due to overtaxation. Well, I think that's a great point. And, you know, sometimes I think that's probably the problem with these articles. And, and while MJ Business is certainly not mainstream media, you know, the article is almost set up to let you believe, if you don't read it carefully, when it says adult use sales slip, it can almost be read to mean that adult use itself is slipping. But as you accurately point out, there's no evidence to show that the consumption rate of marijuana is going down. It's just simply a question of where are the consumers getting it from? And if, uh, you know, the government agencies are going to try to keep sticking more and more taxes on there, uh, then that's going to be a problem. So, you know, in that regard, then that takes us back to Amendment 119. And Jim, uh, I suppose you can... uh, Tell us what the thoughts are of the, uh, you know, the, the industry leaders out there and, and whether you guys have seen a slip in, in your numbers now since you guys have had a fairly active market now for, what, seven or eight years. Yeah, we're going to come in right around $2 billion in cannabis sales statewide here in Colorado this year. Uh, but that's compared to $2.2 billion in 2020 when um, a lot of people were home because of COVID, collecting unemployment. Uh, some of my clients would say, yeah, they could tell when the unemployment checks went out because they People would come right to the dispensaries. So, but it could be, like you were saying, not necessarily consumption. Uh, we are seeing lower prices. We have a very competitive market. Um, Monday and Tuesday, Native Roots was offering a penny joint if you had an I Voted sticker. So um, we do have a very competitive market here uh, with you know, 5 and $10 joints all day long, you know, $30 race. But basically, nobody's panicking. Nobody's throwing in the towel. They're just, it's weathering uh, uh, swings in the uh, overall market. Yes, at the retail level, at the wholesale market, um, it's really not a a good uh, scene. Uh, We have well under $1,000 wholesale prices per pounds, and uh, that is either at or um, below the cost to grow. So uh, a lot of my clients are not having a, a great year on the wholesale side. Well... In, in in terms of the wholesale market, is that something, uh, uh, you know, with respect to your clients, let's say that you're seeing that's unique to Colorado, or is that playing out uh, all over the western part of the United States right now? I'll let Rob take a swing at California, but uh, they call it out here, they call it Croptober. Uh, so a lot of outdoor product comes in, uh, which is, again, not maybe not as, uh, it's not top shelf, but it can be used for extraction. So that's what floods the market in October, or Croptober is the as the cultivators call it. Understood. Okay. Overall, I don't have any concerns for the marijuana market, right? I mean, it's here, it's happening. Uh, Illinois is happening big, even without the addition of uh, the the licenses we need to really make it happen. I talked to people in Missouri. They're very excited about what's going on down there. New York is on the cusp of of taking things big time. So, um, Uh, you know. So that just got pushed back a little bit, Larry. They're now saying the adult use market's not going to roll out until at least midway through 2023 as of yesterday. 2023. Well, I missed that. Okay. Yeah, eight, 18 months now that they're looking at holding this back. So we've we've got a fair amount of time before you see any real changes in New York, unfortunately. Are they saying what's taking so long with the rollout, or is it just you know the government saying what the government wants to say? It's the latter. It's the government saying let's just take our time. In 18 months, we should have this figured out. So you know the timeline, if you add it up, is midway through 23 is when they expect to have. New licenses available, which, you know, I think is great for the existing licensees because if they're able to do what a lot of other states have done, which is, you know, move to a, um, a dual use ahead of everyone else. And they've got this um, first mover advantage that's built in based on the fact that they get the first, you know, flip direct, then uh, those companies should do very, very well. 
Um, but, you know, we're curious to see. And very curious to see what happens now in Virginia as well with Northrum out. And, you know, I think the, the prevailing beliefs that McAuliffe was going to be elected. And, you know, now McAuliffe is lost. And you've got, uh, um, you know, Glenn in there, Youngkin in there. Uh, what he does with the cannabis industry is he's never been, you know, a huge proponent of cannabis. So this might be the first time. And I think a lot of people are even worried about New Jersey with, you know, thinking that Murphy, you know, had a chance of losing. It looks like Murphy's pretty safely in the lead now. But, uh, but there was certainly a chance that, that he wasn't going to, you know, win that election. So I think a lot of people are getting worried about uh, rollbacks in uh, in Canvas right now. Interesting. Are you hearing anything about that, Jim? Well, my comment would be that's why it was such a relief here in Colorado to have Prop 119 fail when it was being uh, promoted uh, more by the conservative side than the liberal side. But both liberals and conservatives voted it down. So um, I think our industry is, is safe here in Colorado. Um, I, don't, I don't see any rollbacks coming in the near future. This is a very popular initiative. It passes any time it's on the ballot. So we'll see what happens, see if Virginia uh, gets their adult use program going in the next couple of years. Um, but right now, I believe Virginia is medical only, correct? Yeah, it's medical only. Uh, they're, they're moving, moving the, uh, the market you know, relatively quickly, or they had been. But, you know, if you look at what happened today, as soon as the election results were announced, uh, the CEO of Jushi actually sent a letter to uh, incoming Governor Youngkin saying, hey, you know, we hope we're going to be very supportive of the industry. And it, was, it was kind of a pandering letter that went out. Uh, I understand why he did it. Jushi's, you know, one of the, uh, the companies that actually has quite a few licenses pending in the state of Virginia. So, you know, if, if you've based your business model on the expectation that a certain state's going to go forward and, you know, you think you're in good shape only to find out that, you know, that's no longer uh, assured, uh, you certainly have to... You know, do whatever kind of damage control you can ahead of it becoming, you know, uh, detrimental to your business model. Well, you know, and that's, but that's a fascinating thing because as we've talked about all the time, you know, this is not a partisan issue except to the extent that certain leaders try to make it, you know, a, 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 a partisan issue for whatever their purposes might be. Um, you know, and, and it's, I don't think it's so simple to say that, you know, that's just going to be business as usual in that regard, because as, as Jim just pointed out a minute ago, very accurately, these ballot measures passing all over the country, including in what we would consider to be very red states by very large margins. And I, I think that people in all of these states want access to cannabis and legal marijuana, whether it be for medical purposes or adult use. And it's going to be very interesting to see how long, you know, people can kind of straddle that gap, let's say, between maybe some of those politicians that are, you know, very far to the right and don't really have very much use for marijuana and the people that they're continuing trying to, to court as their followers who actually do like marijuana quite a bit. I just don't think you can confuse what the voters want and what the voters pass with what politicians will do. Those are two very, very different things. So, I mean, if you even look at, like, my local area here in Southern California, the city of Encinitas passed a law, you know, a year and a half ago now, asking for legalized cannabis, and uh, the city now has just decided they're going to push it back another year. You know, it's supposed to be a 90-day um, coastal commission to, to provide information as to how they're going to govern it, and now the coastal commission's come back and requested, and they'll be granted an additional nine-month stay for them to actually get uh, information back to the city, and that's being done by design, just to slow the entire process down. So they, they accept that they have to change the law and they have to move forward, but they're doing everything they can to retard the process. And that's going to happen, you know, in a lot of different areas. And it certainly could happen in Virginia if Glenn Youngkin decides as the incoming Virginia governor that, you know, Canvas is something he doesn't support. Then sure, the will of the voters means something, but it doesn't mean nearly as much as, you know, what the red tape is that can be put up by the bureaucracy. Yeah, and to follow up on uh, Larry's point, 
it's not a partisan issue. You know, look at Oklahoma, a very red state, and they have a total free market. It's almost a free-for-all with all the unlimited licenses and they, you know, people who drive through Oklahoma say they can't believe the number of dispensaries and the signs they see all over the state, and that's a very small state population-wise. Very true. So, well, look, either way, it's uh, you know, sign of the times and uh, something for us to talk about and for our listeners to think about as uh, you know, we slowly but surely make our way into an era of uh, legal marijuana pretty much anywhere you go. Uh, which will be nice if we're all still young enough to hang out and enjoy it. <laughs> but we'll see. Jim, what do you got for us on the music side today? What's, uh, tell us about what's happening, what you know about uh, Dead & Co.'s performance at Red Rocks, and also where Fiddler's Green, was that the other place they played? Yes, we got four shows. Um, I was wondering if maybe it had something to do with the two shows that got canceled in Florida, because uh, those two Red Rock shows just popped up very late in the uh, fall schedule. They uh, came online sometime in September. So uh, we had four Dead & Company shows, and boy, do we have music. How great is it that we have Fish and Dead & Co. crisscrossing the country, um, playing basically some, some nights back-to-back in the same venue as they did in California, uh, and so, down by uh, San Diego. So wonderful times if you're a Fish fan, if you're a Dead fan. So much going on. Um, wondering if the, uh, the Mexico shows will go on. Um, we have tickets and have uh, booked that and um, just got our instructions, very, very tight COVID instructions uh, for Mexico. You actually have to take a COVID test before you can check into the hotel. So uh, we'll see what happens. Definitely uh, Dead & Co. got a lot of pushback that, uh, you know, that uh, this wasn't really what they had planned to do. But, uh, no, on the Dead & Co. shows in, in, in Colorado, uh, very solid. We got two clips from it today uh, to listen to. Uh, they're playing really well. Uh, heard very, very favorable remarks um, on the uh, shows. The only complaint was, I guess, Red Rocks was as crowded as it's ever been. Uh, basically, you couldn't hardly move. <clears throat> the stairs were jammed uh, with people dancing. Um, the sound was excellent. And then I guess of the four shows, the best one was um, was it uh, the Friday night show uh, at Fiddler's Green, which is an amphitheater in the tech center of Denver. So it's not very, you know, aesthetically nice as Red Rocks, to say the least. It's more you feel like you're in a... Um, you know, an industrial center kind of a, of high-rises and high-tech companies. It's right in the middle of all that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I guess it was a sugar reef for the ages and a uh, wonderful time for everybody who went. Uh, I guess one complaint, though, I did hear about Fiddlers. Once again, massive sold-out crowds. Uh, one of my buddies, it took, uh, took him an hour and a half in line to get into the show. There was long, long lines to get into the show. Um, so... That was one thing I heard uh, sort of on the negative side, but musically it was great. Uh, the boys are playing great, and then I guess they headed out out west to California after that, did some Hollywood Bowl, bowl shows. So, uh, yeah, we'll look forward uh, to seeing them back again uh, when they play in Mexico, playing in the sand in January. So uh, talk a little bit about fish. Unfortunately, I was not able to attend any of the uh, Red Rocks or Fiddler's Green shows, these are secondhand reports because I was at MJ BizCon out in Las Vegas where we broadcasted from, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago now. So uh, that's what's going on. Got uh, reports on the, the fish shows in Las Vegas. Uh, I guess they were super high energy. Yeah, super high energy. And uh, 
uh, incredibly fun and well-themed, right? The first night was a numbers uh, show where they started at 2001, and each song had a progressively lower number until they got to character zero for the encore. No, to, to end the second set, encore is backward down the number line, which made perfect sense. And then, and then grind is the second encore, and on the grind, they talked about the, um, the significance of 4680 being what all those numbers added up to, which then became the theme of the Halloween night of the year 4680 when this futuristic band took place. So the, the, the whole thing was, um, was curated in a way where it started off on night one, giving the audience hints as to what was in store for Halloween night without ever dropping you know, the, the full theme. And then, well, well, the second night seemed normal, but the third night had an animal theme to it, right? That was the the animal night. Yeah, I will say they stretched it on a couple. I'm not sure if you can call Farmhouse, you know, a, an animal theme. I and mean, certainly it's got cluster flies in it, but, you know, it doesn't have, you know. But that's where all the animals live, sure, right? Sure, But, I mean, so some of the ones, you know, I'll, I'll give them, you know, like obviously, like, uh, a lot of them had animal titles in the name. But, like, Gaiuti, obviously, is about a pig. But, you know, Gaiuti, when you look at so you have to actually have know the songs and know the lyrics of the songs to understand that every one of them was, was an animal theme. But it was uh, very creative. Yeah, I like it when they do that. You know, they really stop and think about that kind of stuff and, and pull it all together. And then, I, you know, I, I, I thought that the uh, Halloween show was – well, I shouldn't say I thought because I did not hear it. But the, the reports that I heard from I, it in my sense – I've heard it twice was, now. Yeah, and what did you think of the uh, the musical costume, the uh, the forty six eighty? It is, I mean, super interesting. If you were to compare it to Kazvak's Vox, which they did a couple of years ago, you know, if you were to say between the two, I, mean, I love when they introduce new material for uh, for the musical costume. They've done it three times now. They did it with Wingsuit. They did it with Kazvak. Now they've done it, you know, you know with uh, with this latest one. And I think the twelve songs that they put out there, I, I, there's a couple of them that are going to be able to be opened up, um, you know, much much longer jams than they put out that first time that I'm really excited to hear what they do with them. Uh, and in general, I thought they were all really fun and creative, um, sort of quirky, fun songs. But, uh, but it was great. I mean, now, like, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but what they did as the stage set and what they did with their lights and what they did with everything else, like, it was, it, it was incredible. It was as theatrical as you can get. It was, you know, I'd put it up against like a Cirque du Soleil performance in many ways of having the band come down out of like, you know, holograms out of the ceiling and tubes of light and coming down and, you know, basically being like these speed racer outfits with cool lights on their helmets and all of them dressed up and, you know, giving a whole sort of backstory of, of who they were and that they're from the, you know, the year 4680. And then going into 12 completely original brand new songs. And then again, going out with like a blaze of light as well. So it was super cool. And the, uh, and musically, like I always think from a perspective of these are songs that the audience has never heard before. These are songs that even probably the guitar tech and you know the the light most of the techs have never heard before. They probably have Chris Carota in on it, so he knows when to do the lighting changes. But to be able to nail something like that, you know, your first time around where no one else knows what's going on, it, it's it's pretty amazing to put that much new material together back to back to back and, and pull it off. I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's a. Uh... It's an incredible feat, uh, you know, to be able to come up with, you know, not just one or two or three new tunes, but a, a number of tunes and not just a number of tunes, but a number of tunes that are all more or less, you know, connected to this theme. You know, my son sent me a picture of the comic book that they handed out as the playbill when they went in. And, you know, you see that it just it, it looks so cool. Um, and, and he said it sounded great. And, you know, the, the whole gang that they were with really, really liked it a lot. And similarly, that some of these tunes will be picked up and, you know, the, they'll be played on tour and eventually, you know, more, uh, you know, brought into the fish uh, genre, if you will, in terms of uh, more jams played out and everything. By the same token, I have to say, 
that there's always this wonderful anticipation of, are they going to play X album or Y album or Z album? And I, as much as I love this stuff and I do, uh, I, I'm always a big fan. If they want to come out and play, you know, anything close to what they've done so far with Exile and Loaded and the Wyatt album and Quadrophini and just, you know, one classic album after another. It's just I love hearing the way uh, that they really get inside the album and they, they, they play the albums true, you know, and they do such an amazing job with that. So I guess it's an embarrassment of riches if you're a Fish fan, right? You're either getting brand new material or you're getting their interpretation of classic material. Uh, but either way, it sounded like a four fun days out in Las Vegas. And uh, that's what it's really all about. Jim, the other thing I just want to say before I throw it back to you is we're talking about the dead crisscross of the country with Fish, and that's true. But I was listening to the guys on the Tales from the Golden Road talk about this the other day, more just about Dead & Co. They weren't really talking about Fish. Nobody spends any time really talking about what Phil just did. And what Phil just did out in, in um, uh, the Capitol Theater in Port Chester is nothing short of amazing. And that, that's not to compare the two or say that one's better than the other or you know, anything at all like that. I think Dead & Co. is a great band. I think they serve their purpose. And uh, clearly, you know, they're fun to go see. And when they come to your town, you want to run out and see them. But Phil, at 81 years old, going up there and playing these shows and bringing aboard musicians of a caliber that are just so well-known in this industry and so outstanding that they're all willing to make time to come play with him. And, you know, the songs he pulls out, you know, just last week we were talking and our theme was Halloween and Werewolves of London. And sure enough, true to form, on Sunday night, Phil's group out in Port Chester put together a Mean Werewolves of London. And it was just fun to listen to. And I was really happy that somebody picked up on that and that somebody played it. Uh, it it's too much a part of dead lore and dead history with all these dead bands out there playing, not for somebody to uh, to really pick it up. Um, but, it, you know, I've, I've been following Phil the, the following two weeks after I was there uh, with his ever-changing lineup. And all nine shows, I think, are just as solid as can be with great song selection, uh, played, you know, with, with such energy. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm a big Phil fan too, you know, and it's just wonderful to see Phil out there doing his thing and leading that charge. And I just think that it's important that, you know, as we acknowledge all of this great live music that's going down, that a guy like Phil doesn't get overlooked. And what he just pulled off at the uh, uh, Capitol Theater, you know, doesn't get minimized in any way for a guy uh, his age and, uh, and what he put together. And I'm really curious also whether Dead & Company were going to play our Werewolves too. So if you look at the set list that they posted online, they actually were supposed to do two encores, and they end up doing just Broke Down as an encore, but they blacked out or redacted what the other encore was, and I would have to guess that the other encore was probably a Werewolves as well. Interesting. Interesting. So maybe they just ran out of time. Yes, I certainly enjoyed the uh, Phil shows. I always enjoy Phil shows. Um, he's playing just terrific. Uh, it's good to see him out on the road. And how many uh, shows did you get to on the East Coast, Larry? I made it to the first three, the ones with the original quintet. Um, and then the following week, he played three more. And those were the shows with um, Joe Russo on drums and Levon Helm's daughter, Amy Helm, doing the lead singing. And a gentleman named Bo Beaumont Trench, I believe is his name, playing guitar for them, who was doing a great job. Uh, and then this last week, he had Larry Campbell playing guitar and he had Nicky Bloom doing his vocals. And, uh, you know, these are just such outstanding musicians, all of them. And of course, his son Graham was playing with them and a number of other musicians who are regularly part of his uh, his entourage when he when he's out playing. And, uh, you know, it, it's just amazing. You know, whatever his differences are with Dead & Company, they are what they are. You know, in my world, I'd love to see them all together. 
uh, so that we're bringing in the best of all those different elements and really combining them. Uh, this is the way they've chosen to do it. And, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm very happy with Dead & Co. And it's, it's great to get out there and see the, you know, the traveling circus again and, and get all caught up in it. But it's just as much fun to hang out in a small little theater with about 2,000 people and see Phil and uh, Warren Haynes and Jimmy Herring just tearing it up like nobody's business. Yeah, I think that's especially true now knowing that uh, Terrapin Crossroads is likely closing. So we're about to have you know no venue where Phil's gonna be able to play, which is uh, really unfortunate. I didn't hear about that. What's the story with Terrapin Crossroads? Uh, don't know a hundred percent, you know exactly what's going on with it. But by all accounts, it's um, it, it's all but done. It's um, there's a in Jambase, there's an article on it right now, but it says a closure appears to be imminent. Oh my goodness, that's a shame. That's such a wonderful venue. And, you know, I mean, it, it, I wonder if that says anything about Phil and his intentions of what he wants to do. Supposedly it's because there's, uh, they can't get an extension on their lease. I've been there. Wonderful venue. Hate to see it shut down. But, uh, you know, those venues, they, they do sit empty for a lot of uh, days and nights of the year. And the, the rent still has to be paid and, you know, the utilities. So it is expensive to keep those clubs going. So that might have something to do with it as well. So, yeah, it's... Um it's a wonderful place to be able to see Phil. It's a shame that it won't be there anymore. Um, you know, as far as I know, Bobby's still going to be involved with the Sweetwater, so we still have that. Uh, and I'm sure Phil will find a way to get himself in front of crowds of people uh, to the extent that he feels, you know, that he's up to it and and capable of doing it. But, uh, you know, it's just always great. You know, every, every next time you get to see these guys, because you never know when it's going to be the last. Speaking of which... Has anybody heard the latest on what's going on with Bill Kreutzman, who missed the Colorado shows, came back for the California shows, and then one of the California shows, I forgot which one, they said uh, they literally had it, you know, he, he had to leave the stage during the drum solo and never came back. And on uh, Tales from the Golden Road on Sunday, uh, those guys were talking about, uh, although there was no definitive report, the message they had received that it was a non-COVID-related respiratory ailment. Um, but that was all they had. Uh, but you know, you got a guy Bill's age and, uh, you know, the, the schedule that he's been keeping up with lately and you just hope that he's okay. Yes. He missed the Colorado shows and, um, it's slipping me right now who, uh, filled in for him. Jay Lane, who, who drummed with rat dog and further and a few other iterations. But what I, what I love is that the night that they took him off, the, the night that they took him off stage, they had Jay Lane on standby. So to, sorry for the pun, they didn't miss a beat. I mean, literally, they took him out. Jay just stepped right in. And, you know, I'm sure people in the audience noticed, but, it, you know, I don't think it had the same impact as, like, you know, Colonel Bruce's farewell. Well, let's hope uh, Billy gets back feeling better and gets back to his drums. So um, we have a little bit of uh, Grateful Dead history to talk about today. Now we're going to listen to two of my favorite Grateful Dead songs, Uncle John's Band and Playing in the Band. And um, if you check out Dick's Pick 16, uh, you'll hear some very early versions of that, uh, very new songs at the time, and still solid pieces of the Dead & Co. Rep repertoire. Yeah, I, well, that's true. In fact, um, Dan, why don't you play uh, the, the first clip? And, and again, this is from Dead & Co. recently at Red Rocks that Jim was just uh, giving us the rundown on, but, but this is Uncle John's band from that show.
nobody can argue with that. That's hot music. Yeah, they're really playing well. And uh, there's a 15-minute version of Uncle John's Band at Red Rocks. And I just love that long jam, the lyrics end, and then they come back and end it with, oh, ho, what I want to know, how does the song go? I just love that part of Uncle John's Band. That's beautiful. You know, when they pick it up and they run with it, they really play it so well. Uh, We'll be listening to a cutout of... uh, Playing in the band on the way out, actually the playing in the band reprise, which I love that they did because that's uh, even the dead stopped doing that sometimes. And the reprise was always my favorite part, kind of like Tweezer, I guess, uh, for the kids who go to the fish shows these days. Uh, but Jim, you mentioned this um, November 8th, 1969 show that is Dick's Pick 16. And it, it, it's such a classic show from that era that it's, it's just uh, absolutely must listen to. It's already getting to the end of 69. So the dead, in some respects, are slowly kind of working their way out of the psychedelics, and they're just beginning to introduce some of these new tunes that hadn't, uh, neither Uncle John's nor Playin' had come out yet. And they're really just instrumental versions of them. And uh, the Playin' in the band is titled on the album as The Main Ten, which was what they were calling the song at the time until uh, Bobby really gave birth to it, I guess, on Ace, and then in 70 and 71 it, 71 it came out and by 72 and 73 it was a it was it was a well-established staple uh but it's just fun to listen to this particular point in time as they're really like transitioning from one style over to the other and you know in the midst of this you know tremendous dark star jam that's as good as any from that era uh you know they work in these new tunes and and really kind of tease them and although we're not going to play a clip of that right now uh, I would certainly recommend that anybody uh, who has any interest in both, uh, you know, the the early uh, Grateful Dead era, you know, that kind of primal Dead era we talk about, and and how they went from there to uh, Uncle uh, to uh, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. Uh, this is a great album to listen to, and uh, a great concert to listen to, and, and very very highly recommended. And in keeping with that same spirit, uh, at least we'll mention today, and then do a deep dive on this in a week or two when when Jim has a chance to catch up. Uh, but uh, the Dead released Dick's, uh, Dave's Picks number 40, which for me is, is particularly relevant because it's two shows from Deer Creek that I attended uh, in July of 1990. It was the second year that they played at Deer Creek. The year before, they had done a one-off, and, and we drove down there to see them. And then they this year came in and played two uh, shows, and they were just absolutely tremendous shows, some of the best shows uh, of that summer tour and they were probably although the dead played three more shows in chicago after that before uh, brent midland's untimely passing just about a week later i think it's fair to say that the tinley park shows which were the three shows in chicago in the south suburb are generally not very warmly remembered by deadheads for any one of a number of reasons not a great sounding venue horrible traffic jams a bad attitude by the staff um, and just generally not a great place to see a show, let alone a Grateful Dead show. So people really kind of look at these Deer Creek shows, I think, as as the last true full-bodied Dead shows, whatever you want to call them, with, you know, with Brent in there, you know, really making himself heard and, and present. And, you know, many people would say he was, you know, had finally, after 10 years, found his place in the band and uh, was very firmly entrenched there. And just as he's hitting his peak, he goes out and has this tragic accident and uh, and winds up dead, uh, which took us, of course, to uh, Bruce Hornsby and and ultimately to Vince Welnick. Um, but it took Brent away from the band much too soon, and I think a lot of people uh, would point to that moment as a time 
that was kind of the beginning of the end for Jerry. Uh, that you know he had developed a very special relationship with Brent. I think that's Brent's death, which was drug related, at a period of time when Jerry was also uh, dealing with uh, 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 opioid issues, um, was probably very difficult for him to deal with. And, um, you know, I mean, you can see the performance over the years, although we've talked about a number of strong shows that the dead subsequently played. I think on balance, by the end of that uh, period of time after uh, Brent's death and as they brought the new guys on, you know, they were still Grateful Dead shows. And I saw a number of them during that period up until the end. But it was never quite the same without Brent. And, um, you know, he, he was my guy. I, I started just immediately after Keith left, so I have no Keith experience certainly no pig pen or TC experience. And, you know, for me, my Grateful Dead experience was always built around the band uh, with Brent Midland in there, you know, kind of doing it. Rob, what about you? I know you were a big Deer Creek fan, uh, you know, and, you know, you, you kind of straddled that uh, divide between Brent and uh, Vince. Um, have you had a chance? Well, I'm sure you've probably heard these shows before. I don't know if you've had a chance to hear the, uh, the, Dick, uh, the Dave's Picks release, though. No, I haven't heard it. Um... You know, definitely plan on listening to it relatively soon. But uh, but yeah, I mean, straddling between those two, obviously, it was a, a big blow to me to, to to not have Brent in the lineup anymore. And you know, I always thought Brent was a, a far more energetic and brought so much more to the band outside of you know some Beatles songs than uh, than Vince ever did. So you know, if I'd gotten to see another twenty or thirty Brent shows, I would've been very pleased. Absolutely, and you know, I think that that's just something that you know we all feel about you know and, and I remember in the early 1980s when I was first starting out saying yeah Brent is good but boy I wish I had wish I had seen Keith and by the end you know I couldn't imagine the Grateful Dead without Brent uh, and everything that he brought to the table you know from feels like a stranger to Little Red Rooster when he would go at it with Bobby over the barnyard chicken duel and everything and you know it was just such fun stuff um, and I have you know wonderful memories of these shows from Deer Creek I was there with good friends and uh, although we don't have videos or, uh, you know, YouTube from that era in life, uh, we do have a friend who actually had a Polaroid camera. So we found some pictures that are always shared among us and probably no further than that. But it was a fun place to be and it was a really fun time. And uh, it always makes me happy when the dead release live music at, at a performance that I was at because it gives me a chance to go back and really revisit and as I listen to it I hear little things in the songs that you know bring back memories of that particular performance or you know why that one stands out as opposed to any of the you know the many other hundreds of ones that I got to see uh, over the years. Jim what about you? Oh I have many fond memories you know the 80s were really my time with the Grateful Dead uh, got to see almost every Red Rock show I think I missed one between 83 and 87 uh, so yeah I'd be on Brent's down close on Brent's side, listening to him play that big Hammond organ. So I'm looking forward to uh, Dick's Picks 40 showing up in my mailbox in the next day or so. Yeah, you'll be really pleased when it does. I'm already listened to the entire first show. I'm halfway through the second show, and by the time I get home tonight, I'll have heard that one too. But, you know, for me, it's just like you have to listen to it once again just to reacclimate yourself to it. Then you got to really sit down. You know, I've got to wait for like a Saturday afternoon when the house is empty and I don't have a football game to watch and I can just put it on and really, really dive into it deep. And uh, it's just wonderful to be able to do that. And I love these Dave's picks. Uh, this, you know, combined with the box set, the St. Louis box set having just come out, you know, I've got more, you know, new live dead music to listen to than I know what to do with. So that's a lot of fun. Well, good. We'll talk about that more next week when I've had a chance to listen to it. So, um... We're going to close out with the outro from uh, 
the Red Rock show. Uh, they did great set list, great set list, uh, you know, playing in the band and Uncle John's band, a few more songs, and then um, they finish it with the uh, reprise of Uncle John's band, which is what we're going to listen to now. Yes, the, well, actually, the reprise of playing in the band. But yes, it, it's going to come in right here uh, as we leave. It's, uh, it's always fun because, like, you know, I always say the when they remembered to play it, it was always fun. If they forgot and had to play it two nights later, it was fun then, too. But it's, you know, just a little energetic burst from Bobby at a point typically after a long space where it really kind of gives the uh, the audience a boost. But before we do that, Jim, good show today. Good stuff that you brought to the table. Thank you very much for that. We'll talk to you next week. Rob, any final thoughts or words? Nope. Just uh, have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Well, thank you so much as always. Uh, and again, this is Larry Mishkin. Thank you all for listening. We will look forward to... Uh, talking to you next week. Please j- enjoy this uh, outtake of playing in the band from Red Rocks uh, uh, in Colorado just a couple of weeks ago. And as always, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.